0: contaminated product to bad behavior by employees, there are countless ways that companies can crash and burn due to poor risk management. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. We know that no business is immune from a costly scandal or misstep in its supply chain. But we might be surprised to learn of just how many opportunities for disaster there are. There are the obvious ones involving tainted product or dangerous materials. Then there are the public displays, which invariably end up on social media, such as the recent disastrous series of incidents aboard planes of United Airlines. But no matter how different and wide-ranging these events might be, they can all be traced back to inadequate risk management on the part of the companies involved. My guest today is Stephen Minsky, CEO of Logic Manager, who will guide us through the steps that companies should be taking to build effective enterprise risk management programs. We'll learn exactly what he means by poor governance, why companies shouldn't necessarily focus the bulk of their risk management efforts on areas where they spend the most money, and what's responsible for the most frequent breakdowns in risk management across the supply chain. So here is my conversation with Stephen Minsky. Stephen Minsky, welcome to the program.
1: Hey, Bob. Glad to be here
0: Stephen. How do scandals happen that affect the supply chain? Is it bad management? Is it that the company's asleep at the wheel? Are they inevitable? What typically is the reason if you can generalize for these disruptions to even occur?
1: My experience in the last twelve years has been none of the above. usually it's good people in a good process. That's what companies are practiced to do, but it's poor governance in nearly every single case. 100% preventable poor governance where you have multiple good people in good places, but there's disconnects between them. And it's an inevitable consequence of a Russian-led kind of situation.
0: Well, supply chain governance and risk management is a big deal these days with lots of companies. But I'm curious as to what you mean when you use the word governance. How far does that extend within the company in terms of specific programs? What do you mean by the word?
1: It has multiple different words. Some people call it enterprise risk management. Some people call it governance risk and compliance. It's really all about connecting the dots. Kind of as I alluded to to your first question about why these scandals are preventable and why they keep happening is that, in silos, if you will, people are very effective at their jobs. But the silos are not talking to each other. There aren't bridges between the silos. And that's when you have poor governance. Because when you have also silos that are disconnected from each other, they're not aligned. And then sometimes they're creating collateral damage even for themselves. So it's not just poor communications, it's actually misalignment on goals. There's a whole raft of things happen. It's kind of like the Galapagos Islands with the same bird species being just separated by a mountain and they start going off in different directions.
0: It's like these strange iguanas prowling through the through the supply chain here and there. Um,
1: exactly. That's exactly what it is. If You can rejoin, if you will, the population. They'll naturally restore to good governance. But you've got yeah. to create those bridges.
0: Where do you typically see the weak links in the supply chain?
1: Where processes have connections to each other. That's the weakest place. So it's not necessarily a serial connection like one would think where there's a One process ends in a direct handoff to another process. Sometimes, or frequently, it's processes that are not directly connected to each other. They're indirectly connected to each other, and one process creates collateral damage in the other process. And there's a middle process in between, which appears for all practical purposes. The handoff is terrific. Everything's going fine. But then it shows up in the downstream or the upstream process and that's why it's hard to detect, and that's why these things keep happening. And that's what we mean, again, by good governance is not just connecting them in a linear fashion, but also connecting the indirect as as well as the
0: direct. So anywhere where there's the possibility of connections between so-called silos and processes, not a specific part of the supply chain that you're identifying, like procurement or transportation or raw materials. I mean, it sounds like any of those things could go wrong as long as there's a weak link between them.
1: Yes, that's true, but it is a little bit more forecastable than that because by industry, there are risks, if you will, that are in certain parts of a supply chain, and I would say it's not only the manufacturing industry that has a supply chain. The banking has a supply chain. Insurance has a supply chain. It's just a digital virtual supply chain, but it's a supply chain nonetheless. And when you look at the different types of industries you'll see if you will, certain systemic risks that are industry-wide there are systemic risks that are just have to do with people and technology and then there's very specific risks that have to do with business model and market position and product and things of
0: that nature. Now supply chains by their nature deal with many outside partners, but I'm guessing that you could identify disconnects both across supply chains with multiple partners as well as within individual companies, correct? Absolutely. Do you see serious disconnections, especially as a company gets large and it has all these departments and it has its internal silos? And I, I guess in the past, we've seen that that has caused problems without even bothering to to look at the problems that, that exist when you're dealing with the outside world.
1: It's very interesting because size actually is one of the false positives for detecting risk. I'll just give an example from the financial industry. You're working with suppliers. There's a misnomer, a misconception that who you spend more money on is important, and therefore you need to watch where you spend the most amount of money. For example, one of our customers was a financial services company. They looked at really applying enterprise risk management in a, in a very real way, and they saw that actually financial advisors were of highest risk. Though they don't pay them very much, they determine where they're going to invest their money in a financial services industry where you invest your money is everything. And even though you're paying them a very little amount of money, the impact that they have on your business is enormous. And they figured that out. And this particular company, for example, was 14th place regional player post-financial crisis came out nationally number one. Four of their, if you will, top competitors went out of business during the financial crisis. Another four had to be uh, recapitalized and so forth and so on. And they had largely avoided the financial crisis by actually using that risk mitigation technique of identifying what is the impact of the vendor, not the dollar expenditure with the vendor.
0: But it seems like there are so many different things that can go wrong that it must be really challenging to get your arms around all the possibilities. I mean, on one hand, if you have something in the supply chain of material that is hazardous, it gets in there because of lax supplier management. On the other hand, you might have something like an airline with an airline employee acting inappropriately and being videoed by by passengers. Those seem to be Two very distinct things, and yet they all have to be incorporated into a single governance program, correct?
1: Absolutely. But this is where I think the feeling of overwhelmness that you're talking about is not the case. It's a feeling from lack of experience. So enterprise risk management, what it does is it actually prioritizes. So you might have exactly, as you say, a thousand possible scenarios. But you can actually use risk management techniques, which is risk assessment. So you're scoring, you're giving a quantitative objective score, if you will, to all of these scenarios and even the processes and even down to uh, things of that nature. And you can really actually prioritize where is it going to go wrong. And you brought up one of my favorite examples of good governance, the video of a passenger being dragged down an airline. But that is an entirely preventable governance issue. They have a policy, you know, you you talk about the United Airlines example, they actually had a widely used policy that said that they would pay up to $1,300 to get a volunteer passenger. On that particular day, with that particular incident, they'd stopped at $800. Why is that? Do you think that United Airlines really wanted to save a few hundred dollars? Uh, no, that's, a, that's not an employee being uh, saving $400. It doesn't go into their pocket. That's not a rogue employee. That's not a case of the company wanting to save money per se on this particular day. This is a systemic governance problem. And I bet, and my understanding of it and prognosis of it, is really you have just another policy that says those people that go over $800 will find themselves demoted and removed from their positions. And these two policies, which is, are in conflict with each other and cause one policy not to work, a very important policy. And that's, I believe, what happened on that day is good people in good situation having a conflict in their policies. And that is uh, in the the interpretation of their policies and the execution of their policies. And I don't mean interpretation like they didn't know what to do. Interpretation as in they have two very clear orders and which one of them should they follow, the one that will pay their mortgage. And that is really an inappropriate way of bad governance, of putting employees in a a situation where they need to think of their mortgage, their paycheck, and over the benefit of the customer and over benefit of the shareholder. That is the ultimate example of poor governance. This would have very clearly been avoided if they had just followed the policy to $1,300. Even if you don't like that policy, even if you don't agree with that policy, I'm just saying objectively, enterprise risk management would have prevented that scenario from happening and those billions of dollars of consequences from not having been felt.
0: Let's talk about where it all starts. Who within the organization should typically be responsible for creating, managing, maintaining a viable governance and risk management program?
1: Really a very good question. It has to do, rather than role, it has to do with having a role. So every industry has a core competency where your best and brightest, if you will, are in those roles. And that's usually a good place to house it. You need somebody who's forward-thinking, somebody who's proactive, things of that nature. And when you think about any particular industry, there's roles that have those types of people in those roles, whether that be reporting up to a CFO, whether that be reporting directly to the board. It doesn't really matter where that role reports. It's where that expertise is. And then the second component of it is having a role at all. If you're going to cross silos, build bridges, however you want to call it, one silo can't be expected to do this as a peer to another silo, somebody, a third group, if you will, a very tiny group, maybe even for a a 10,000 employee to even 50,000 employee company, could easily do this with only two people in the enterprise risk management group for the entire corporation. But they're the ones that are setting this process. They're the ones that are setting this governance mechanism. They're the ones that are putting this infrastructure, this process, this methodology in place, and then following up on it to make sure that it works. And, and so the, the one is having a solid process and infrastructure and expertise, and the other one is putting it in a place where that process and expertise and infrastructure can thrive.
0: So title is not necessarily essential, is it? I mean, and some companies have appointed chief risk officers. Are you saying that's not necessarily essential as long as you do have someone within the organization who clearly carries that responsibility?
1: Absolutely. I'll give you an example where even titles cause problems. Sometimes, for example, banks have multiple risk officers, credit officers risk officers, liquidity risk officers, uh, economic risk officers, and operational risk officers. And it's very hard for them to get a chief risk officer. It's just a very awkward and difficult scenario. Whereas, say, for example, in a manufacturing organization, a vice president of risk management would do just fine. It's being accountable And, again, having a sponsor that will help you to manage your process, your people, and and, and your infrastructure, that's really what counts, not what you call it and not where it's housed.
0: All right. So if you're a company and you want to approach this whole issue of governance from the start, obviously you're going to come up with some kind of a document, especially in terms of employee behavior, the employee guide, which you hand out to everybody and maybe nobody reads. Uh, The question is how to implement that throughout the organization. I'm wondering how you feel about the need for so-called tabletop exercises, drills of some kind, where you're constantly bringing this forward and running people through scenarios. Tell me about the importance of that and how that can be accomplished.
1: It's interesting that you say that, and I call that operationalization of a policy policy. And it could be any policy, by the way. An HR policy has the same weaknesses of of writing down what your employee handbook says you can and cannot do, or your compliance policies, or your cyber policies. It just really—it's a systemic problem of how do you make your policies actually work on the front line? Period. And therefore, just having a risk management policy doesn't really help very much at all. It's of course a good thing to have one, but it doesn't solve the problem in its entirety. What's really Important is this operationalization of any and all policies. And that means how do I bridge the divide between the person who's accountable for the policy and the people who are involved with the policy, getting the frontline process owners engaged with that policy, getting the other silos, if you want to call them, the other functions engaged with that policy. And then that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where success happens. And what I would say is rather than boiling an ocean and saying, putting it everywhere all the time is to pick a policy that a company is particularly worried about. If they're worried about cyber, cyber, fine. If you're worried about food quality, food quality it is. Start with somewhere where the organization cares about a particular policy, just pick one, and then operationalize it and use enterprise risk management to do so. Make a quick win in 90 days, and then take another policy and another policy. And after you've done that three or four times, people will start to really want to join in on this thing because they see that it works and it produces results fast. And you're getting 90-day wins, if you will, or 120-day wins. It doesn't really matter what the exact day is, but we're talking about quick wins.
0: But specifically, how do you get them engaged? Do you participate in these exercises, these drills, these scenario-building type of situations? Or how exactly do you do that?
1: I think that the scenario things are presumptive. That is an end result, not the beginning. So the beginning usually, you can start anywhere you want. I'll give you three examples of good places to start to get this to really work. One is a risk assessment. Before you can figure out what the scenario is you have to worry about, you have to figure out what the core root cause risk is, right? And so you could say, what will cause your plant to shut down? And you know what are some of the root causes there, whether it be a material supply issue or whether it be a personnel issue and you 're looking at okay where's this risk coming from if you will, and then you, you want, with this risk assessment, then you can start to go from there and say okay i 've identified this risk now. what do I want to do as a mitigation activity to this trigger, this root cause, if you will, of this, of this problem that's going to manifest itself probably across multiple processes, multiple silos simultaneously. And then you want to get into monitoring. And then you want to be able to say, okay, I've put in a control, a mitigation activity to prevent this risk from materializing. And if it does materialize to actually minimize the impact of it, that's where you're getting into your scenario. But then you're actually saying, well, how do I monitor that this control is actually being followed? And a desktop exercise is 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 one way of doing it but i think it's a particularly expensive way of doing it there's shorter simpler more tactical task oriented monitoring activities that are more directly related to the determining if the control if you will is actually effective in managing the risk and then actually putting that monitoring in in place on the frequency that's appropriate if that's hourly daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, whatever is appropriate for the risk. And that's where I'd say the most frequent misconception, the most frequent breakdown of, of this enterprise risk management and supply chain problem is is people are thinking about it on a macro level where it's really just a, a simple matter of, of actually rather than taking people away from their jobs with a, with a scenario, you're actually in line at helping them get their jobs done and in the process collecting some information and determining if that information is is starting to skew. And that's really what people do for quality. It's very, very, very similar to the quality process. You're not looking for rework and at the end, you're trying to put quality way, way, way up in the front of the process. And it's very similar with risk management. You want to put that way up in the front of the process, these rework issues of, of scenarios and things of that nature never happen.
0: So you're not necessarily going to stop operations for a day and have some kind of a drill where you put everybody through an imaginary scenario, as you say, take them out of their jobs. That isn't necessarily the best way to go.
1: Absolutely. I'll give you an example. A manufacturing example was one of my actual uh, earlier jobs as as an engineer, ice cream. And it was very interesting. There's a temperature would affect the manufacturing process, the materials and how they're mixed. There's multiple little variables. And controlling them in isolation wouldn't do it. Because let's say if the line slowed down, then that would be fine if the temperature was a little bit warmer, but it stayed in the slightly warmer temperature for more time. That would be fine. And the two would cancel each other out. So that's where these variables actually are connected and linked to each other. So just monitoring them in isolation is not enough. It's connecting the dots to say, hey, if – the whole thing starts to skew where the temperature starts to rise and the line is speeding up, just as a a hypothetical, that's when you're going to get a bad outcome. And so when you're figuring out these are the two that will coincide to produce a bad result, and then you're just monitoring the temperature and you're monitoring the the line speed, and you don't have to be staring at it. It can be fully automated, and just when those two coincide, an alert goes off. And then you're able to fix it before the ice cream actually is produced as mush and needs to be reworked or thrown out.
0: But you can't anticipate everything, can you? Are there not always surprises? It seems like companies these days are prote- always find themselves protecting against the last disruption and not foreseeing the next one. So doesn't that require some kind of macro approach or some kind of institution of corporate agility that allows you to deal with whatever comes down the pike, whether you're able to predict that specific incident or not?
1: This is another misnomer. In 12 years in doing this, I haven't seen a single surprise that hasn't been fully preventable and wasn't actually, in in fact, not only that, but it's actually known to the front line for six to nine months at least ahead of time that it's happening. For example, with my bet with the, the, the Pepsi metal shaving filings example, you will find some testimony that comes out that frontline workers saw that there were shavings, saw that there was a potential problem for these shavings or things of that nature, reported it to their boss. It didn't go anywhere. There wasn't an avenue to to cross over the silo to another set of folks who designed the machines or designed the process to actually do something about it. And it sat. And there were probably not just one person, but probably dozens that knew about it, but just were powerless to be able to do anything about it and get it to the right people who could do something about it. so actually, using the front-line observations, which is again back to what we call a, a risk assessment, they want to tell you. They're pro- in their own way. They see this day and day out. They're doing their jobs. They're professional in their jobs. They know when something is going. A little bit south different than it's ever gone before they're going to see that change they're going to not maybe understand how to prevent it they might not understand what to do with it but they definitely want to raise their hand and tell you about it and that's when you can then say wow something different is happening something bad potentially could happen here. Let's look at this and figure out what kind of, can, again, then we're back to our control. What can we do? And then how do we monitor to make sure this thing doesn't, once it, it's corrected stays corrected. So talking to your frontline and doing risk assessments with your frontline, what typically happens is the scenario that you're talking about is senior leadership is doing risk assessments with each other. They already meet with each other. They pretty much know what each other's information is. It's the two levels down, three levels down, four levels down, that senior leadership doesn't ever have the opportunity to come in contact. And therefore, they just really don't know what is actually going on there. And the several levels down have really no method. They have no way to cross silos or cross hierarchies to make these issues known so that resources can be applied to them. And in this way, it becomes very preventable.
0: Or in some cases, deliberately turning a blind eye, as we've seen in multiple cases in the automotive industry in the last few years. The problems were there. They were reported. And senior management either refused to look at it or swept it under the rug, which I guess is the ultimate sin.
1: See, I go to a a worse sin than even all that. The automotive situation that you're particularly uh, talking about with the emissions scandal. So that scandal started as a preventable problem. It actually is is the research that, that I've done on it that the people who are building the catalytic converters, the engineers, they knew they were working and knew that the compliance requirements were going to be going up over the next 10 years. They designed a catalog converter for the car that and, and truck and so forth that would actually be appropriate for the five, 10 year scenario. And then a 10% across the board cost cut came, and they were saying, hey, this is oversized. It's expensive. We need 10% from everybody, just across the board, one of these 10% cost cuts. And this oversized way ahead, if you will, this is far more than what we need. It was downsized to a cheaper, smaller device. But then when the, the inevitable happened, which was the the known increasing of, of the emission standards, unfortunately, there was no room left in the car or the truck to put the bigger device in. And so they got stuck and they couldn't redesign the model. The, the mistake and the die had been set. It was a 100% mm-hmm. preventable problem. And at the time of the 10 and the cause of it was not management or negligence in that sense. It was management's demand for a 10% cost cut without looking at what are the risks associated with a 10% cost cut? What are the ramifications of this 10% cost cut in this area? Maybe we should be cutting in this other area and increasing the investment in another area. Let's, let's not just do it across the board 10%. It's possible to do it that way, but you're really creating a lot of unknown risks. And that's a frequent trigger, if you will, of, of these, what I call, Unknown knowns, meaning it's known to the front line. Those engineers knew about it years in advance. They just couldn't do anything about it and they couldn't get anybody's ear on it because at the time it met the compliance requirements.
0: Well, it's great to hear your perceptions, Stephen Minsky, and to explode some misperceptions that myself and others have had about avoidability of supply chain disasters. So I want to thank you so much for helping us to understand what constitutes a truly effective Governance and Risk Management program for companies today. Thank you very much for being with us.
1: My pleasure, Bob. Thank you so much.
0: That was my conversation with Stephen Minsky of Logic Manager, talking about the fundamentals of enterprise risk management. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming and downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.